But even more so than oil, the concentration in the production of advanced chips is just in a handful of companies and a handful of countries. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Chris Miller, is author of the new book, Chip Wars, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. The book tells the story of the microchip, including its history and its profound impact on international relations and geopolitics today. Chris Miller is an associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. We kick off discussing why the microchip is central to our world today. Chris Miller then explains how Taiwan and South Korea became the two major international hubs for the manufacture of specialized chips. This leads to a conversation about the geopolitical implications of the chip manufacturing supply chain that relies on just a few key nodes. We also discuss efforts by the U.S. to prevent China from building a domestic advanced chip manufacturing industry. I am thrilled to speak with Chris Miller. Chip Wars is one of the most interesting books that I've read in a really long time. I devoured it cover to cover, and it is just chock full of fascinating insights into geopolitics using the lens of the silicone wafer. Now here is my conversation with Chris Miller, author of the new book, Chip Wars, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Today, chips are in all sorts of devices. We probably assume that Semiconductors are inside of smartphones or PCs, but it's not just high-tech devices. It's dishwashers and microwaves and automobiles can have hundreds or in some cases thousands of chips inside. So the global economy can't work without semiconductors. And that creates complications because the semiconductor supply chain is increasingly being threatened by the world's biggest geopolitical dispute between the United States and China. And so unlike in the past, throughout most of the history of the chip industry, there's now a real question about whether advanced economies can get the semiconductors they need, because many of the world's most advanced chips, and over a third of the computing power of the world adds each year, 
can only be produced in Taiwan. So the acceleration of U.S.-China competition and tensions puts all of that increasingly at risk. I want to dig a little deeper into the analogy you make in your book that essentially chips have become the new oil, like the commodity that is driving geopolitics. How did that come to be? For a long time, chips really were only used in computers, hence their names. But today, they are crucial for everything. Just like oil, the economy can't work without them. But even more so than oil, the concentration in the production of advanced chips is just in a handful of companies and a handful of countries. If you look, for example, at Saudi Arabia, which produces 15 or so percent of the world's oil, that gives it a whole lot of market position, market power. But in the semiconductor industry, Taiwan has a critical role in manufacturing chips, as I mentioned. The Netherlands has a 100% market share in the production of a critical type of machine tool without which you can't make chips. And across the supply chain of chemicals and tools and software needed to produce semiconductors, there are often a couple or in some cases just one company in a handful of countries that can produce advanced chips. And the industry is structured this way because the precision and the investment needed to produce these types of components is just extraordinary. And an advanced chip making facility can cost $25 billion making them the most expensive factories in human history. And with an industry like that and investment values that are that high, there's just no way the supply chain is going to be democratized and shared between lots of different countries. So you've got a series of choke points where individual firms or countries have control over a critical part of the semiconductor supply chain. Your book does a, a real masterful job, I think, of explaining the history of the development of what was then the computer chip, which you know now is more commonly just the chip. And you know, for most of the 20th century, the USA was the main, if not the only player in the design and manufacture of chips. But gradually, you tell the story of how the center of gravity shifted towards East Asia. Two of the biggest producers today are Korea and Taiwan. And I wanted to ask you about each of those, starting with Korea. How did Korea become a manufacturing hub? And what kinds of chips are made there? Today, Korea is a big player, above all, in the production of memory chips. And just to explain what that means, there's a couple different types of chips. There are chips that process data and there's chips that remember data. And Korean firms are key players in this second part of chips. And for a long time, Korea was just a small player in the chip industry. And where it did play a role, it was in pretty low value parts of the chip making process, like assembling chips after they're produced into a ceramic or a plastic package. But around the late 1980s, the Korean government and a number of key Korean companies like Samsung began targeting the chip industry as a potential growth area. They invested lots of money to build up their capabilities. They also very deliberately inserted themselves into the international chip supply chain, sending, for example, lots of students to study at leading universities, opening research centers in Silicon Valley, and doing everything they could to license technology and acquire cutting-edge equipment from Japanese and U.S. chip makers. So they learned from the best in the business. And over time, they learned so much that they became the best in the business, at least when it comes to producing memory chips, which today they're 
among the world's leaders. And so the, the lesson from Create Success, I think, is about the critical importance of plugging into the best-in-class firms, of deeply integrating with the companies that already have access to the most advanced technology. That's the only way you can really catch up. And that's exactly what companies like Samsung have done over the past several decades. And how is it that Taiwan has become the global manufacturing hub for the most advanced type of chips? Like Korea, Taiwan identified several decades ago the importance of the chip industry, both in terms of economics and jobs created, but also in terms of geopolitics. And the Taiwanese government has been fearful for some time that its security depends on a somewhat tenuous guarantee from the U.S. government. And during the middle decades of the Cold War, during the Vietnam War, the U.S. was thinking about ways it could draw down from Asia. The Taiwanese government focused on chips as a way to make itself critically important for the U.S., wagering that even if some Americans weren't interested in defending Taiwan for Taiwan's sake, they might be interested in defending it if it played a critical role in electronics. And so the Taiwanese government invested very heavily in building up a chip industry. But what really set Taiwan apart was not the government's role, but the role of one company, TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which today produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips. And what distinguished TSMC from all of its competitors was that it had a new and innovative business model that it managed to pioneer beginning in the late 1980s. And its business model was to do the following. Before TSMC, almost all chips were designed and produced by the same companies, but TSMC started up planning only to manufacture chips, letting other companies design them, take their design to TSMC, and TSMC would handle the production. And that let TSMC develop enormous scale because it produced chips not just for itself, but for lots of different companies, Apple, NVIDIA, AMD. And so today, TSMC is the world's largest chip maker, and it benefits from enormous economies of scale that have followed from the fact that it's producing more chips than anyone else in the world. And one consequence of that innovation, as you detail in your book, the innovation that TSMC you know, created chips that other people designed is that other businesses could create design firms without having to create a whole very expensive manufacturing process as well. That's right. TSMC's new business model didn't only work well for them, and it certainly did work well for them, but it also made possible for startups to envision bringing new ideas to the market without having to invest $20 billion in building a chip making facility, which is a huge endeavor that would have just been impossible for most startups. Now, if you're a startup, if you can design a chip, which is no easy task, you can take it to TSMC and that company will do the fabrication for you. They'll handle the manufacturing, they'll handle the capital investment. All you have to do is bring them the design. And so for companies like Apple, which most people don't think of as a chip designer, but in fact is one of the world's most advanced, they design all of the key chips inside of each iPhone. Apple has been able to become a chip designer precisely because it knew it could turn to companies like TSMC to actually do the manufacturing. And Apple today, although it designs all of the key chips in its computers and phones, it manufactures none of them. They're all outsourced to Taiwan. So you noted that TSMC produces the most advanced chips in the world. Like what makes a chip advanced compared to less advanced chip technology? The key question is how much computing power a chip has. And 
computing power is largely a factor of the number of transistors on each chip. And a transistor is just a tiny electric circuit. It's either on or off. When it's on, it creates a one, off creates a zero. And these are all the ones and zeros that undergird all data, all software, all digital computing. The more transistors you get on each chip, the more ones and zeros you have. And today, if you buy a new iPhone, for example, at the Apple store, the main chip on that phone will have 15 billion transistors on it, which means it can process 15 billion ones or zeros at a time. And the more transistors you can fit on each chip, the more computations you can undertake. But making that possible requires scaling down the size of your transistors so that it's possible to squeeze more of them on a chip. And that's been the process, shrinking transistors that's delivered the advances in computing power known as Moore's Law, which has been in place since the mid-1960s when it was first projected that the computing power provided by each chip would double every year or two. And that rate has persisted all the way to the present day. And you tell this story in your book, but the reason that TSMC is able to manufacture those kinds of advanced chips is because another company, a Dutch company, created like a specialized machine that's able to create the process of manufacturing. And you mentioned earlier, like 100% of that machine was built in the Netherlands is like Dutch technology. That's absolutely right. And one of the most complex parts of the chip making process is acquiring the machine tools needed to make chips. So the transistors on each chip, if you look at advanced chips, are tiny. They're the size of a virus, each one of them. And so manufacturing the pieces of silicon such that they've got 15 billion tiny circuits, each one of which is the size of a virus, requires the most precise machinery ever invented in human history. And there's a small number of companies that can produce the different types of machines you need to undertake this manufacturing. There's machines that can lay down layers of materials, thin films of materials, just a couple atoms thick, or etch tiny canyons into a silicon chip, just a couple atoms wide. And then there's the company called ASML in the Netherlands, which produces machines that are capable of producing large amounts of extreme ultraviolet light, which has a small enough wavelength that is used to carve at nanometer scale on the most advanced chips. So this light is produced via a massive explosion inside of these machines. It's collected via the flattest mirrors ever produced in human history. And then it's shined on silicon wafers via a pattern, a mask, which creates the chip pattern on each piece of silicon. And without these machines, it's simply impossible to make an advanced semiconductor. And there's only one company, ASML, which has a 100% market share in their production. So although Taiwan has a 90% market share in the production of the most advanced chips, Taiwan can't do it alone. They need to buy these machine tools largely from the US, Japan, and the Netherlands, depending on which type of machine tool you're looking at. So I think what this really shows is that there's no way any single country or company can do it alone. If you want to make an advanced chip, you've got to acquire this equipment from leading firms in multiple different countries. And just as no one country can do it alone, there are certain you know choke points in the whole process, one of them being that ASML company, the other being TSMC. Like, What do we know about what happens if the supply chain is somehow disrupted? 
Well, we've had some examples of supply chain disruptions caused by natural disasters in recent years. The Japanese tsunami from a decade ago or earthquakes in Taiwan from the 1990s. But the biggest disruption to supply chains today is caused by the U.S. government, which is trying and succeeding in preventing China from accessing many of the tools and software that you need to design and produce advanced chips. And because there's really only one supply chain for a lot of the key tools and software, you've got to buy equipment from each of five different firms that produces the most cutting edge equipment. You've got to buy software from each of the three firms that produces the cutting edge software tools. If you're cut off of that, you simply can't produce advanced chips. And right now, although the chip supply chain is international, in the sense that it stretches from the Netherlands to the US to Japan and Taiwan, it's far from global because most countries have a minimal role in this production process. And that means that they're entirely at the whim of the small number of countries that do play a large role. And the US still plays the largest role in terms of the entire chip making process from designs through software tools through the machine tools. And so when it wants to cut off countries from accessing the tools needed to make chips, it can fairly straightforwardly do so. And that's what it's done to Russia this year and also what it's doing in a more narrow fashion to China. And you note in your book that you know China imports more in terms of dollars chips than it does oil, yet it is blocked from accessing the most advanced kinds of chips because the United States can leverage its position in global financial markets and also its position in the kind of supply chain of, of the manufacture and design of, of chips to prevent China from obtaining domestic capacity to build their own you know, advanced chip manufacturing processes. How has China responded to this you know, apparent effort to be cut off from this key technology? Well, China's actually been trying to domesticate chip-making technology now for almost a decade. In 2014, Xi Jinping described this as a priority, and a number of different Chinese industrial policy plans, such as Made in China 2025, have set explicit quantitative targets of trying to wean China off its reliance on imported chips. So self-sufficiency has really been deeply ingrained in Chinese industrial policy goals for a long time, even before the U.S. export controls that we were discussing. But I think the, the latest U.S. controls, which impose a further round of limits on what China is able to acquire and, and China's future pathway for developing advanced ships domestically, do provide a further incentive for China to try to find alternative sources of supply domestically. The problem is that there really aren't any. There are some Chinese firms that can produce far less advanced analogs to what you can acquire from chip toolmakers in Japan, the US, or the Netherlands. But the reality is that even the Chinese firms that are trying to create analogous machines, they rely heavily on imported component parts from Europe, Japan, and the US as well. And so their ability to keep operating in the face of US restrictions is also unclear. The reality when you look at the industry as a whole is that China is hugely reliant still on imported technology. And almost all of the key technology that China imports is either from the US or from a country that's a US ally and is currently facing US pressure to align their export control regulations with America's. How much of a geopolitical disadvantage is it that China can't 
access or can't build its own domestic advanced manufacturing capabilities, what are they losing out on that otherwise China might be able to enjoy? I think the first thing to look at is intelligence capabilities. I think it's a fact of international politics, or at least it has been a fact historically, that whenever great powers have access to advanced computing capabilities, they use them for espionage purposes, which is why in the Cold War, both the U.S. National Security Agency and the KGB were among the first recipients of supercomputers built in their countries. And if China struggles to keep up in chip making, it will also struggle to keep up in high performance computing capabilities. And right now, and until the latest restrictions that the Biden administration announced in October, China could, in almost all cases, buy almost all chips that were produced in the U.S. or Taiwan and plug them into its most advanced computers. And now that's beginning to change, which, if it persists, will put Chinese intelligence operations at a disadvantage because there's a huge use of advanced computing in intelligence for code breaking. For example, the earliest computers that were deployed in World War II were for code breaking and that a use case hasn't changed, but also for collecting signals, assessing what type of information is being collected in them. And so from the intelligence perspective, there's a clear reason for countries to want to have the most advanced computing, wanting to cut off their adversaries. Then in military systems as well, there's increasing realization that the future of military power will be defined by computing power and that the ability to apply advanced semiconductors both directly to military systems, but also to train semi-autonomous systems in the most advanced data centers will be critical to the future of military power. And so if you think, for example, of advanced drones that are semi-autonomous, full of sophisticated sensor systems, they'll need a lot of processing power on board to make sense of the information they're getting. And the more autonomous they operate, the more advanced and complex the training of their systems will need to be, and that will all require pretty advanced data centers. So both from the intelligence perspective and from the military perspective, there's a lot of reason to think that computing power does provide real geopolitical advantages, which is why China's been trying to develop it and why the U.S. is now more committed than ever to keeping China far behind. In addition to seeking to keep China far behind, as you said, the U.S. also this year passed the CHIPS Act seeking to boost domestic manufacture capacity in the United States of advanced chips. Could you briefly explain what did the CHIPS Act do and how does that fit into the broader geopolitical intrigue around the manufacture and, and design and production of chips? So I think the way to look at the CHIPS Act is if the export controls and restrictions on sales to China were the stick that the industry had to abide by, the CHIPS Act is the carrot a infusion of funds from the U.S. government to the chip industry. And there's two main prongs of the CHIPS Act. First, it will spend around $39 billion incentivizing chip manufacturing in the U.S., both by U.S. firms, but also by foreign firms that open facilities in the U.S. And the goal here is to reduce the tax advantages that currently exist between manufacturing chips in the U.S. versus in East Asia. And one of the key differentiating factors in the cost gap of chip making in the U.S. versus Asia is tax policy. And so the CHIPS Act is intended to go some way towards changing that. Second, the CHIPS Act puts around $13 billion towards different R&D programs, which are intended to keep the U.S. at the center of the chip industry's R&D. And this is important for commercial reasons, but it's also important for geopolitical reasons, because whichever country has a 
dominant position in the R&D ecosystem will shape how future technologies are commercialized and in which geographies they are deployed. And so the U.S., I think, has realized over the past couple of years the geopolitical significance of its existing position in the chip industry, which is quite strong, although it has to be shared with the Netherlands and Taiwan and Japan, and wants to keep this position, the U.S. weight in the industry unchanged or even increased. And I think U.S. policymakers, before they passed the CHIPS Act, were looking at China, which spent the CHIPS Act a year in terms of its own industrial subsidy program since 2014, and trying to find ways to compete with the fact that the Chinese government is pouring far more money into its own chip industry. And although China remains far behind technologically, it's certainly trying to compensate in terms of dollar values spent. And although that's a low efficiency way to compensate, it will nevertheless have some impact on the industry. Because today, for most chip makers and also for many of the tool makers, China is either their most important customer or their second most important customer. And so China's already won for itself a influential voice in the chip industry, even if its technology still lags behind what you can get in the US or Japan or Taiwan. And that includes TSMC. Well, that's right. TSMC is a company that is both very exposed to the US and to China. Most of TSMC's big customers today are American firms, but it was only back in 2020 when the two biggest customers of TSMC were first Apple and second Huawei. But TSMC does have a couple of small facilities in China. More importantly, though, many of the chips that TSMC produces are then sent to China for assembly into final goods like iPhones. So there's a a lot of reason that TSMC leadership wants to keep the Chinese government happy as well as the U.S. government. But the reality is that when it comes down to it, TSMC is only able to produce its chips because it has access to certain tools and certain materials from the US and Japan. It can't do it alone. And so it's a lot more reliant on access to the Western chip supply chain, if you will, than it is access to the Chinese market. And so even if you set aside the security questions and the Taiwan-China relationship, pure technology and economic concerns make TSMC a lot more responsive to the US government's demands than to the Chinese government's demands. Lastly, you know, your book tells just fascinating stories of relentless technological progress and designs and innovations. In the coming years, do you expect any key technological inflection points that may shape the future of the geopolitics of chips? The big question hanging over the chip industry is whether Moore's law can continue. And Moore's law is actually not a law. It's a prediction that was made in 1965, a uh, effort to see into the future and hope that a doubling of computing power every year or two would be possible. And it has been possible for 60 years, but it's not guaranteed. And so it could slow at some point. And if it does, then the balance of power in the chip industry will change dramatically because right now the companies at the cutting edge stay at the cutting edge because they race forward at the exponential growth rate dictated by Moore's law. And if that becomes technologically impossible, then the factor that makes them cutting edge and preserves them at the cutting edge becomes much more difficult to maintain. So the key question, not only for users of computing power, which is all of us, but also for chip industry companies is, can Moore's law keep chugging forward at the same rate? And I think we've got at least another half decade or maybe decade of visibility 
and confidence that it will. But after 2030, there's real uncertainty as to how you can keep shrinking transistors, keep cramming more of them on chips. And if we can't find new ways to do that, then the growth in computing power that we've taken for granted will grind to a halt. Chris, thank you so much and congrats on such a great book. Well, thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.